the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. Adams is a behavioral and developmental optometrist specializing in vision therapy and rehabilitating therapy for children and adults. Dr. Kana, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for that introduction, Dana. I really appreciate it. Now, um, Dr. Kana, most people are familiar with optometrists when they check their eyesight. What is the role of a behavioral optometrist? Um, I agree. Most people are a role are, are familiar with a traditional optometrist where you sit in the exam chair and you read the 2020 letters across the room and you get a pair of eyeglasses and you make sure your eyes are healthy. But what's different about a behavioral optometrist is we're more holistic. We look at how the eyes and the brain and the body and the sensory systems function in a synergistic manner. So it's more than just a Um, Do you need eyeglasses to see well and are your eyes um, healthy? It's more about are your eyes and your brain working together? Um, When you read, do you see double or do you cover one eye? Um, Can you process what you're seeing and hearing at the same time? So again, it's more of the whole person. Uh And after many years working as a mainstream optometrist, what made you... Uh, open your alternative clinic and what is your main focus? Oh, now that's a good question. <laughs> what made me um, switch from mainstream optometry is there were a lot of instances where you, I was 100 plus percent sure I had given a person the correct eyeglass prescription. I went through my which is better one or two. I got the person to see 2020, maybe even better than 2020 and he or she would reject the eyeglasses. And they would say, there's something wrong. I can't use these glasses. They're not right. And I knew they were right. I knew the eyes were healthy and there was a problem. And I would see it not all the time, but enough that I knew that I was missing a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was my adventure into leaving mainstream optometry. Uh-huh. And I um, understand you work a lot with uh, children on the autistic spectrum. So what is your experience with children on the spectrum or those with special needs in relation to vision therapy? Mm, I would say my relationship with children on the spectrum would be that, and I think that we're all on the spectrum. I mean, no one is is, is perfect. <laughs> but I would say that in a case and in, in, in those cases, what we're missing is we're missing the fact that when we do an eye exam in a traditional manner, we're only looking at the part of the eye that gives you a straight ahead, your straight ahead eyesight. But if you take into account the peripheral retina, then you're more likely to explain or give the parents an explanation on why their children behave in the way that they do. That may be stimming, that may be toe walking, that may be running your hands along the surface, humming. What 
what are those behaviors and how do they tell you or give you a clue as to what the real problem is that stems from the peripheral retina not working properly? Mm -hmm. I hope I answered your question. Yes, you did. And um, uh, can you tell us uh, more about the neuro-optometric rehabilitation techniques you use with your patients? Yes. When it comes to... You get right to the point, don't you, Dana? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to neuro-optometric rehabilitation, we have two main buckets that we pull from. The first bucket would be the lens therapy bucket. And if you've ever been to a circus and you go into the fun house, mm -hmm. you know how they have those mirrors around and they distort everything? Yeah. I liken that to how some people on the spectrum perceive their environment. It's distorted. Yeah. And when it's distorted, you walk funny, you tilt funny, you reach out and you touch everything, you're very overwhelmed, you carry internal stress. So we can use prism lenses to actually target a certain part of the brain to improve function. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one bucket, Dana. Yeah. The other bucket would be the actual activities and therapy procedures that we do. And I have, um, it's very seldom that at my level that I'm the one who would diagnose a person that's been on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But that did happen recently. So we had a little girl come in. She was about 10 years old and she was in her head. There was no reason for her to come out and she didn't communicate with anyone. She didn't make good eye contact. She was perfectly happy within herself. And her mother and her had, you know, form this bond and her mom would talk for her, which I don't even think she realized she was doing. Yeah. <laughs> you may see that often too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in that case, maybe the therapeutic lenses would have been a good way to go, but we also had to recommend that she see other professionals, but we also enrolled her in a vision rehabilitation program that will work on sensory integration. Uh -huh. And so we've always been taught what the five senses are. And now we know there are you know, some other senses since my childhood that we now know about, like vestibular, for example, and tactile. But yeah. we worked on sensory integration. So we had great results in that case, too. Uh -huh. So could you describe a bit of the sensory integration program you would do? Mm -hmm. So if you were to visit a vision rehabilitation clinic, it may kind of remind you of what a physical therapy clinic would look like or an occupational therapy clinic would look like. So you may see someone um, on the floor and you're thinking, what are they doing on the floor? Why are they moving their body in that way? Um, what kind of reflexes are they trying to integrate? Um, why are they crawling and why are they on the balance board? Um, what's with the swinging balls um, and touching things and wearing this crazy prism goggles so it has a very big look to it and there are lots of activities that we do to integrate but it the integration actually starts in the exam room while we're testing the um, individual and we're looking at things like how do their eyes and their brain work together what kind of signals are they get to turning their eyes in and out in a synchronized manner 
how do their eyes and ears work together? We're doing the bell testing. So there's a lot of different things that we're doing to get a picture of how this person works and uh, function in everyday life. Yeah. And would you say that the first stage would be to work on the primitive reflexes? Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. So we, we actually make that part of our evaluation to determine if it needs if, if there are primitive reflexes that need to be integrated. And for the listeners who don't know what primitive reflexes are, is it okay if I go ahead and explain that? Yeah, yeah, sure, please. So every organism comes into the world with certain behaviors imprinted in their brainstem, which means you have no conscious control over them. So if you were to startle a baby, for example, every normal neurotypical baby would flail their arms and their legs out and their head would go back. And then they would slowly bring their head down and then one set of appendages on the left side or right side down and then the other and they fold into themselves. It's just a reflex. They have no control over it. So that's what happens when you startle. Every spider comes into this world knowing how to build a web. It's imprinted in their brainstem. Anyway, getting back to humans, at certain um, months before the age of one-ish, those behaviors fall away so that higher skills can build upon them. So let's say, for example, there's one reflex called the spinal reflex that should be integrated. So at some point, if you tickle a person's spine, they arch a certain way. And after a certain point, they don't do that. And let's say they don't lose that reflex then that would be your child who's a bedwetter. Or that would be your child who can't sit still in the classroom. They're constantly sl- um, slouching and moving around. And you're saying, be still, sit sit up, and, and they can't do it. So that's what I mean about primitive reflexes. There's a host of them, um, some for sucking and some for grasping, um, just a whole lot of them. And at certain points, the lower skills dis- um, dissipate and higher skills build on top of them if they're integrated. Uh-huh. And if they're not, they present problems later, which interfere with learning. So we have to go back and revisit those developmental steps. Exactly. And which primitive reflexes would you be testing for? Oh, we look at the startle reflex, um, which is the one I mentioned earlier. Um, there's several. We look at the um, ATNR reflex. <laughs> It's so hard to explain the spinal yeah. reflex, the palmar reflex. So we look at about five of them. Could you also speak a bit about the retinal processing? Oh, would love to. So I'm going to have the audience imagine an eyeball. And you're looking at the eyeball from this side. Normally when light enters the eye, most of it hits a very specific central part of your retina. And it goes to the brain and it tells you what you're looking at. That's probably 80% of the light entering the eye. It all goes into this one little concentrated area called the macula. The other 20% goes off to the side, away from the macula. Those are called non-visual pathways. So you have light entering the eye that gets sent to the brain and doesn't hit that central part of the eye, it hits off to the side. So those non-visual pathways go to the brain and those are the pathways that tell you where you are in space. Um, They may tell you how you feel, um, where something is that you're looking at. 
So they're the non-visual pathways. So I'm going to give you an impact on a non-visual pathway that's not functioning properly, okay? So let's say you have a person who likes physical stimulation. They, they need to be hit. Maybe they bang their heads or they want you to pinch them, something along those lines. And they need that stimulation and they don't run from it, they run to it. That's a person who may not know where their body is in space. Or they may run their hands along surfaces. Or they may develop rituals where they have to run their hand across a certain, a certain amount of times. So that's a different story. But my whole point is, if you're where am I non-visual pathway isn't functioning properly, then you will see a certain kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And what w- would the treatment be like? Mm. Oh, I just thought of another one that's very prominent. Can I diverge for a minute and come back to that one? Yeah, sure. Okay, just remind me of that question. <laughs> I once had a little girl come in who was a toe walker. And it was the most unusual walk you've ever seen, unless you're quite familiar with toe walkers. So she was very high up on her toes. So we gave her a special test that looks like a graph, a big piece of graph paper. And we had to look right in the center of that graph paper, Dana. Mm-hmm. And we said, how far off to the side can you see? Because she was basically a 2020 kid. Her field of vision was so constricted, it couldn't have been much bigger than a quarter. And I mean money wow. quarter. So her response or her um, compensation for that constricted awareness of space was to walk on her toes but she would have passed every healthy evaluation you could have given her. And had she had surgery to you know, change the muscle in her legs, it would not have resolved the problem because the problem was her peripheral retina had been shut down. And it's not a disease shutdown. It's um, something that's done by the brain subconsciously because Maybe it's hypersensitive and you just can't, the brain couldn't deal with that part of the um, stimulus. So it found a way to shut it down. And so you see a behavior as a result. Uh-huh. So how did you, I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. So um, how did we fix it? Yeah. So in a case like that, and I really want to emphasize that sometimes, oftentimes with autism, it takes a village. Mm-hmm. So you need those OT, you need the PT, and you need the neurooptometrist working together. Exactly. And in this case, the main part of her therapy, if I can use the word main because it's really multifaceted, was we had to use judiciously some prism lenses that would make her want to go down on her feet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we rock a person where we make it worse, better, worse, better, so their brain cannot adapt to the lens. So with, we call it comfort discomfort lenses. Yeah. So that's the answer. <laughs> okay. And we said we'd go back to the um, child with the spatial awareness. Okay. So um, in the case of um, spatial awareness problems, it's almost always a given that it needs some type of lens therapy. We use very low powered lenses, but we get a very big effect. So when you're working with a neurooptometrist, you may see them write a prescription that in normal optical 
in the normal optical world would be dismissed. So let's say a normal prescription in terms of money started out at 50, 50 cents, 0 0.50. Mm -hmm. We might write a prescription for 80% less than that. And it may be um, 0.12, for example. And that 0.12 really makes the world pop. So instead of um, having to live in a 3D world, so that you have to touch everything because your visual system isn't functioning properly, we can help your journey by giving you some special lenses that will allow you to appreciate death more. And when you mix those lenses in with the VR, the visual rehabilitation, then you begin to get a new person. Then you get the child who can read for 20 minutes or the child who can begin to um, interact with their environment and their family. Wow. And if you could give one advice to parents, what would that be? If I could give one piece of advice, and I think I'm probably preaching to this, preaching to the choir. So this group probably already knows that, but it would be, be a warrior for your child. Yeah. And everything you do on the behalf of your child while they're young, will have major ramifications later. Because sometimes you get this diagnosis, oh, there's nothing you can do for your child. Um, this child is gonna be limited in this, re in this way or that way. To heck with that, find a neurooptometrist, find someone who works with children on the spectrum and the OT specter and the PT specter and don't give up. Um, I know cost is always a factor and the divorce rate is really high among families with autistic children. My advice would be, God gave you that child for a reason. You are that child's advocate. Never stop looking and find a way to stay together as a family. Exactly. It would be, be so much worth it in the end. It's just yeah. one more barrier because nobody has a perfect life. Right, Dana? Exactly. <laughs> one more barrier you got to get through. My next question was um, what goes in a typical vision uh, a session, but now I saw that now we saw the pandemic. Maybe you can tell us how the sessions go. Oh, I will say one thing the pandemic has done for my profession is that we've always thought, oh, we can't help you unless you come to the office. Yeah. Well, guess what? That's not true. We found very creative ways to work with all of our patients, no matter what their diagnosis is, and do it remotely. So we're doing vision rehabilitation remotely. We're doing consults remotely. So I think that in some ways, the pandemic has had some positive effects in the medical profession. I don't think it's just my office either. Uh -huh. So people all over the world can contact you, right? That is true. In fact, um, next week, even though our office is in Illinois, we'll be working with someone who's in Oregon, and we're doing it remotely. Um, oh. We have uh, patients in Finland we're working with remotely. The Netherlands <laughs> we're working remotely. So, it, oh, of course, in the United States as well, but you get my point. Yeah. So how can the parents get in touch with you? Oh, thank you for asking. So the name of our establishment is the Mind Eye Institute. 
And if anyone wants to get a hold of us, they can always go to www.mindi.com and they can get the phone number there. So that's M-I-N-D-E-Y-E.com. Uh-huh. We have a free quiz online or you can um, call us that way. But if you want the phone number in the United States, the yeah. phone number is 847-501-2020. 847-501-2020. Thank you very much, Carla, for the amazing talk. And I always like learning some more things. Yes. Well, and Dana, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. So, oh. so thank you, Dana. And thank you to everyone who's, who tuned in or who will tune in. Yes, yes. Thank you for listening to the Sensory Change Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe.